All right, well, this is the second study on Presbyterianism. Uh, we are trying to record these uh, for in case people miss or if they don't come to Sunday school but they want to listen. Uh, ho- hopefully this is a, um, a beneficial study. Uh, I, I last time asked the question, and this is the question really we'll be answering the whole time, and that is, what does it mean to be Presbyterian? And I said that previously, in my experience, I gave the answer, Presbyterian is a church that has elders, but over time, which was my ecumenical way of emphasizing that any church that has elders is in reality a Presbyterian church, and there is some truth to to that, Uh, but if you look at it more as a historical question, Presbyterianism has not always existed as a distinct branch of Christianity. Protestantism did not exist until the 16th century, and then Presbyterianism emerged as a branch of the Protestant Reformation. One of the three main branches, remember there was uh, Reformed, Lutheran, and Anglican. Well, it is a branch of the Reformed Church, uh, Calvinism. Although, in reality, all of those churches in the days of the Reformation uh, look similar. And churches today that are in that Reformed camp, I I, I cited the ERC, it's the Dutch version, uh, whereas the Scottish version is Presbyterianism. And it was those Scots Presbyterians who came to America... Uh, so there's a long legacy of Presbyterianism in America as well. But they, they would end up looking very similar because they, they come out of that same branch of, of theological expression. And that theological expression looks very similar in worship because the conviction of the reformers, and this is, if anything, this is the big overarching concern of the class. That, that the conviction of the reformers is that our theology is given... Uh, it, it, it comes to expression most in a most focused way. I'm having trouble articulating this thought, even though it's the key thought. It, it comes to expression uh, in worship. And so worship is a reflection of our theology. And there's no way to, to deny that. Uh, I, I joke about you know the churches that have the contemporary worship with the rock concert, but call themselves Reformed. We have Reformed preaching. I, I, I can't accept that. And a lot of the things I would say today is uh, would be a defense of that thought. I'm not suggesting that such churches are not Christian in the broad sense, but I am suggesting that in the Reformed Presbyterian sense, that Reformed worship and, and the kind of life that we live both corporately and individually has a certain flavor. That's the word I've been using. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but uh, there, there is a flavor to... Presbyterian devotion. And again, that is most focused, but it's not limited to, but it's most focused uh, to, uh, the, 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 to public worship. So uh, the main textbook uh, that I've been using, uh, or that I will be using, is uh, Daryl Hart's Recovering Mother Kirk, A Case for Liturgy and the Reformed Tradition. The other one, although there's several others, is uh, Terry Johnson's book, Leading in Worship, and he makes the very case that I was just making. Uh, and then the other two, although there, there are several others, uh, our own directory of worship in the third uh, book of, the, uh, of our book of order. And remember, I said that if you look at an original Westminster confession, it's confession and directory of worship. That was how they thought. I don't think anything. I need to bring that and show it to you because I have an old copy. But nothing encapsulates that thought so well. Theology and directory of worship, you can't take them apart. It, and it's telling, I should add, if you look at the PCA, I don't want to pick on the PCA too much, but the PCA doesn't have a directory of worship. 
It's amazing to think of that. And what they're seeking to do, and, and, and broader evangelical reform movements, what they're seeking to do is hold on to the theology, but uh, ascribing to a, a variety of worship expressions. Uh, and the other book is uh, Hughes, Oliphant, and Old's Reformed Worship According to Scripture. Uh, and Hughes, Oliphant, and Old was uh, Terry Johnson's mentor at Erskine Seminary. So it's all connected um, and I knew all these men except for Terry Johnson, but I'm related to Hughes Elf and Old. I knew Daryl while I was in Philadelphia. So what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? Well, that's a question that we are answering most clearly in worship. And uh, although going behind that thought, looking at the 20th century in particular, and Daryl, by the way, is a historian, so is Hughes Olive and Old. Uh, so they are looking at it, and this is what interests me most, quite frankly, because as, as I say, Presbyterianism is a historical phenomenon. Uh, um, Daryl is looking at the loss of a Presbyterian identity in the 20th century. And, and, the, and the great three emphases of uh, Reformed thought were doctrine, worldview, and exper- experimental Calvinism. Um, I, I want to read a quote from here just to, to give a sense of experimental Calvinism, which, by the way, I'm in favor of at least one in three and possibly two, although I don't think I'm in favor of two. I would, I would have to think about it. I'd have to define it a little more clearly. It's more the emphasis of the Dutch churches. Um, but certainly doctrine in the spirit of Machen or Dabney or Calvin uh, and, and Christian experience. That's what experimental means in the spirit of the Puritans and Edwards. Uh, this is... Uh, this is what Daryl gives this quote. Uh, it's from Ola Winslow, Jonathan Edwards, and I can't tell whether this is what Ola Winslow is saying about Jonathan Edwards or, is, or if this is a quote of Edwards taken from the book. Uh, but speaking of uh, what Daryl calls the depth of emotion that characterize this brand of, of, of Calvinism, here's the quote, a calm, sweet, abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world and a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ and wrapped and swallowed up in God, the sense I had of divine things, that has to be a quote of Edwards, the sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden, as it were, kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of my soul that I know not how to express. Another word for that, can anyone remember, for experimental Calvinism? Pietism. So the Reformed Pietists. Uh, the, the, the problem with Reformed Pietism, even in that quote, although this would not have been true of Jonathan Edwards, but the problem with Reformed Pietism is that it abstracts devotion from the church. Even in that quote, you see, I was alone with God in the mountains. Again, Edwards would not have been guilty of that, but as it's come into modern expression, certainly in the 20th century, that is what you find. Uh, the church more or less being optional rather than central. Uh, so, and, and as I said, in the age of COVID, that, that conviction is really being tested. So... Uh, but 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 Daryl, those are the three. Daryl is advocating for what uh, what he sees as the the truer expression of Presbyterianism, historically speaking, what he calls liturgism, liturgism, or the liturgists, emphasizing worship in the local church as standing at the heart of the Christian life and the Christian outlook. 
And uh, so let me let me read. This is will be a lengthy quote, which we didn't get to last time. Uh, I have a lot of yellow to cover, but th- this really focuses the concern. Um, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? What does it mean more broadly to be a Calvinist? So he's, he's interacting with uh, the, the three emphases that he gave last, uh, doctrine, worldview, and experimental Calvinism. He says, what this description lacks is one of the chief features of church reform that Calvin spearheaded. In addition to clarifying the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which really, if you think of it, was the last two Sunday schools. <laughs> we had the Reformation, which focused on justification, and then before that we had a study on justification. It's amazing to see, in a sense, how these three studies all fit together. In addition to that, Hart says, the French reformer, that's Calvin, believed that the Protestant Reformation would not amount to much without the reform of worship. And I'll just stop there, going back to you, Saul, if an old something he told me, at, uh, at his table is that the three uh, great uh, aspects of the Reformation, one was justification clearly, but you can't limit it to justification. The other was scripture, sola scriptura, and the third was worship. It was a reform of worship. So a return to the scriptures, a reform of worship, and a clarifying of the gospel. You can't understand the Reformation if you don't have those three pegs. In fact, going on with the quote, Calvin placed worship ahead of justification in his list of things, as he put it, encompassed uh, that encompassed the whole substance of Christianity. First, this is a quote of Calvin, the mode in which God is duly worshipped and second uh, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. And I quoted that actually uh, last Sunday night. First, the true way to worship God is the first concern of the Reformation. And second, the source from which salvation is to be obtained. As I said in the sermon, Jesus Christ is the fountainhead of both. We find both in him. We learn the way to the Father is through him. We also find the way that the Father offers salvation to us, which is through him. So both of these were the central concerns. But notice, Hart says, that he put worship first. It was the central concern of the Reformation. What were they reforming? The reformers. What's the answer to the question? What were they reforming? The church. The church. It was the church that was in captivity and that needed to be liberated. Not just the Christian. It was the church that they were liberating. And the movements they were created were, uh, came to expression in the churches. If worship, I'll just, I want to read this whole page. If worship was so important to Calvin and the reform wing of the Reformation, why are contemporary expressions of the Reformed tradition not known for their interest in worship? He's, he's interacting with the Reformed pietists. So he says, these essays collected here make the case for such a fourth sector, the Reformed liturgist. By liturgism, I mean an understanding of Calvinism that is firmly rooted in the ministry of the church and her gathering for worship. Liturgism is not simply concerned with content or order of worship services. It involves the life of the visible church through her officers, ordinances, ordinances are the preaching, the sacraments, and so on, and public worship. Rather than making correct beliefs, sanctified endeavor, or emotional intensity the crucial piece of the Christian life, reform liturgism recognizes, as Calvin did, 
the importance of worship, the means of grace and, and participation in the body of Christ for the gathering of new believers and the sustenance of mature saints. And, uh, and, and these are convictions which I've, I've long held, but as I said, for the last two years have been really solidifying in my heart. And then as, I, as I'm preaching through Exodus, it's impossible not to preach this point because it's the central concern of Exodus. What God is contending for all through Exodus is the pure worship of his people constantly. Uh, so much so that I said last time that the hour of worship is, is the hour in which your, your faith is being tested more than anywhere else. And I think that's consistent with that reform liturgical outlook of the reformers. The question which we might have is uh, how do we account for the indifference? One of the things that is remarkable that occurred in, in the second part of the 20th century was that there was a revival in reformed thought. There was a, a sudden um, uh, renewed interest in Reformed theology. And, and suddenly uh, the publishers were very eager to print all these old works that had fallen out of favor. And so you have Banner of Truth, but you have many other uh, publishers that are just uh, proliferating these works. You have a revival of Reformed thought, uh, but you don't have a revival of Reformed worship. How do we account for that in, in the midst of the 20th uh, century? Uh, Daryl says, what is worth commenting on by way of introduction is the startling indifference among 20th century Christian or Calvinists regarding the church and worship and pursuing the goal of glorifying and enjoying God. Again, Westminster Shorter Catechism number one. Or to use uh, the language of Terry Johnson, which I don't think I need to read, uh, but, well, let me see. Maybe I'll read uh, a line or two. He says, ultimately, theological concepts, not pragmatic considerations, exert determining influence over the shape that services of worship will take. That's the first line of the book. Far from being theoretical abstractions, the peculiar doctrines of the various churches inevitably generate forms of worship that are both consistent with these doctrines and give expression to them. But then, again, considering uh, developments in the 20th century from a historical perspective, he says, we, uh, we state the obvious because perhaps the time has come for the Reformed and Presbyterian community to consider from whence it has come and whither it is going. For the first time in over 400 years, a consensus as to what constitutes Presbyterian worship is nowhere to be found. He cites the PCA, where no such book or directory can be agreed upon. For many, he says... This is a point of pride. It is almost universally assumed that Reformed theology can adapt to virtually any form of worship. Today, even among conservative Presbyterians, one can never know when visiting their churches whether they will worship in the style of the Revivalistic Baptists, the Charismatics, the Episcopalians, 1950s-style Presbyterians, or the non-worship of the seeker-friendly model. Many treat this as a positive de development and celebrate the diversity, but it raises some very important questions about the survival of Presbyterianism itself. He says, in the long run, this will allow the theology of the churches to fall into disuse. If the forms cannot express the doctrines, the doctrines will disappear. Reformed theology once did and must continue to generate its own forms 
or it will vanish from the face of the earth, first neglected, then forgotten. Well, what what happened was, uh, and and I confess uh, there are many historical factors, some that I could get into that I do understand, some that I don't fully comprehend, uh, but uh, that that is not my focus. I'm simply explaining that, uh, although there is one point that I will point to in a moment, I'm simply explaining uh, that, or I'm pointing to the fact that it has occurred. There's this notion, again, that Reformed theology is capable of a variety of expressions, and that's its beauty. That is alien, at the very least, that is alien from the Reformers' notion of what it meant to be reformed. And so if we are really the heirs of the reformers, then uh, we ought to honor their legacy or, or perhaps reject it. But we ought not to pretend that we are their sons if we treat reformed theology, uh, if we divorce it from reformed worship. Let's see, there was another quote I wanted to read. Ah, there it is, verse 17, or chapter, uh, page 17. He says, many reform, this is the heart again, many reformed and Presbyterians who desire to propagate and maintain their theological heritage see no real difference between evangelical and reformed practices. This book challenges the notion that reformed and evangelical pieties are fundamentally similar. It argues that reformed identity cannot be separated from reformed practices in church and worship. So the indifference amounts to this, again, a belief that our theology is capable of multiple liturgical expressions rather than the belief of the reformers and of Calvin that our theology ought to be expressed in our liturgy, that is, our worship. If our theology is one, so ought our worship practices. And in reality, there ought to be very little variety. Now, this isn't the case. I'll give you an example. (laughs) One of the ministries of this church is uh, is the, the passers-by, the travelers. I see a new family, and I see them really engaged in worship, and I always know they're passing through. And, and ev- inevitably, they are, and this is one of our ministries. But when people are traveling, and I know when you travel, you, you encounter the same things. You, you look for a church uh, before you leave on your trip, uh, and uh, but, but you don't know what you're going to get. Well, this is PCA, but am I, you go back to the Johnson quote. Am I going to get uh, a revivalistic Baptist service? Am I going to get charismatic? What am I going to get? Uh, but people always say, well, you know, I worship in a PCA church or a Baptist church, but I at least know when I'm traveling, the OPC is going to be solid. And so that ine- inevitably this is what people say to me, even if they're not OPC. It's because they don't know what they're going to get. Again, for many, that's a point of pride, the, 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 the variety. From the standpoint of the reformers, reformed Presbyterian ought to look a certain way in, in, in almost every case with, with a very, very narrow range of variety, not, not a broad range of variety. Reformed worship ought to come to, to uh, expression in liturgy. The heart of the liturgical outlook, this is what Daryl says. At the heart of the liturgical outlook outlook is a concern for the life of the visible church as embodied in her public worship. Okay, I think we've hammered that point home enough. But what he says after that is that now we have four categories. We have uh, have uh, doctrine, worldview, pietist, and we have liturgist. 
And what he's saying is that if, if, you, if you're a liturgist, you can be all four at once. The problem with the, other, the others, when they become the emphasis, especially the pietists, but often too the, the doctrinalists, um, Arthur Pink was a, a doctrinalist. Read his biography. He didn't go to church, but he was a doctrinalist. And he was instrumental in reviving Reformed theology, but he didn't go to church. Now, he didn't go to church because he lamented the sad state of the church. He still should have gone. Uh, he, in fact, he lived in places with really solid churches. It's a bit of a mystery why he didn't go. Uh, but he was a doctrinalist. Uh, if you're a liturgist, you can be all four at once. That's the beauty of it. And when you put liturgism first, that is, again, Reformed theology coming to expression in the, the, the gathering of believers in public worship, then, uh, then it, it prevents a distortion that the other three are capable of creating when one of those becomes the emphasis. And so he says, this concern, that is the liturgical outlook, is crucial to the other ways that Reformed believers have articulated their self-identity because worship keeps doctrine, culture, and piety in proper balance. The church in worship embodies the doctrines that God's people confess. Ecclesiology and liturgy also prevent the cultural endeavors of believers from going in directions that neglect the fundamental differences between the church and the world. Furthermore, without being grounded in worship in the visible church, Christian piety tends towards individualism and subjectivity. And yet throughout much of the 20th century, Reformed and Presbyterians have uh, pursued doctrine, culture and piety without giving self-conscious attention to ecclesiology and liturgy. And he says, if, for instance, Calvinists understood aright the centrality of public worship and the function of word and sacrament, the emphasis on doctrine, worldview and piety might find their proper and yet subordinate places in the reformed identity. All right. So. One of the things I said, I didn't want to get into all the historical factors, although there are historical explanations for this. Um, but if you think of uh, the historic man, I'm still on lesson one. <laughs> That's all right. This happened when I taught it the first time. Uh, I have a whole second page of notes, which is called lesson two. We'll get there eventually. You know, if it weren't for the 20th century, I wouldn't have to take so much time to explain this. <laughs> but we've lost it. All right. Well. If you think of the main division in the Christian church in America in the 20th century, how would you describe that? This, this informs uh, what, what has taken place, the indifference I've spoken of. What's the main divide in Christianity, Protestant Christianity? And I thought you might say that evangelicalism. So people typically identify as either evangelical or liberal in their theological outlook and in their church identity. And, uh, and, and Daryl suggests, and I think rightly, that this has helped to shape uh, the modern Presbyterian outlook. Uh, but the evangelical church has not done a good job of emphasizing the centrality of the local church or 
especially from a Reformed outlook, uh, the particular form and flavor of, of Christian piety and devotion. It's too broad in its outlook. Uh, and it's very doctrinal. It's another expression of doctrinalism, number one. But it is not a liturgical movement in any sense. It is, by definition, a broad movement. And, uh, and, and that historical divide and that historical conflict has helped to shape, as I say, the modern Presbyterian outlook. But Daryl says the real divide, historically speaking, looking far broader than the 20th century, what, what, what the reformers were contending for, and their heirs throughout history for many centuries, uh, 400 years, more than 400 years, in fact, 500 years now. <laughs> uh, we just had the, the fifth centennial, whatever you call that. Uh, in 2017, um, of the Reformation, what, uh, what, what has more historically divided uh, two camps within Presbyterianism is the liturgist and the pietist. So that is what Daryl says is the real divide, the liturgist and the pietist. And that would be a division, I think we could say, within the evangelical camp. And that's the, the, the divide that we are more interested in defining and exploring. That pietism has taken hold and liturgism has fallen out of favor. But one of the things, and I, this will actually finally get us into the second lesson, is that there is a longing for, for, litur- for liturgy, uh, a real longing for it. And Presbyterians have really missed an opportunity So he says this, since the 18th century, the real divide, not just in American Protestantism, but in American Christianity, has been between formalists and anti-formalists, that is, liturgists, liturgicalists, actually, and pietists. The popularity of revivalism combined with the cultural factors in the United States that favor individualistic expressions of Christianity have made Protestant liturgical liturgicalism scarce. But a high view of the church and the ministry of word and sacrament was a substantial part of historic Protestantism prior to the middle of the 19th century. Uh, so, and, and well, let me go on. What is more, as these essays in this volume argue, high church Calvinism may prove a welcome antidote to some of the coarseness and sentimentality that have prompted some evangelicals to look to Canterbury, that's Anglicanism, Rome, that's Roman Catholicism, or Constantinople, that is uh, Greek Orthodox, for relief. If anything, this book's aim is to show that Geneva should be another option for Protestants seeking a corporate and liturgical expression for their faith. All right, well, that brings us to lesson two, finally. Uh, We have 15 minutes to just kind of get into it. And we are, by the way, going to break on, uh, on the uh, 26th. We're not going to have any Sunday school that day. For one thing, because I'm taking that Sunday off, but also because, it, like Thanksgiving, so many people will just be gone. Uh, we will have worship, obviously, but we're, we're going to break for that. But we'll just keep going up to that point, and then we'll keep going after that. So I've, I've already began, uh, begun to anticipate this. Daryl talks about people who are, they've grown tired. And this really explains my own Christian experience, going to 
broadly evangelical churches as a young Christian up through my college days, people have grown tired of the sentimentality and they're looking for greater substance. But they're not in general finding it in the Presbyterian churches. And so in many cases, they end up going much higher on the high church spectrum, either to Rome or to to uh, Anglicanism or to Eastern Orthodoxy, because at least they have what an appearance of substance and of tradition and of the key word to me is of the sacred. The world is so uh, it is so uh, what's the opposite of sacred? (laughs) Not blasphemous. It's so sacrilegious. Maybe sacrilegious is the word. Uh, people, when they come into church, they want to find something fundamentally different than they're finding in the world. Uh, sure, sure. But secular has a neutral connotation. I'm looking for something specifically bad. <laughs> so sacrilegious, I think, is probably the, the proper word. Uh, profane. Profane is another good word. And so people want to be cleansed when they come into the church from the worldliness, the stain of the world. But they come into the world, I mean, excuse me, they come into the church and they find more of the world. It looks very, uh, very similar. And uh, people have grown tired of that. Uh, and, and I grew tired of that very quickly. I needed, I needed relief from the world. I didn't need more of the world. And yet I found the world in the church. And this is where many Christians have ended up. And they're not finding relief in Presbyterian churches. At least I'm speaking very broadly. So this is what uh, Daryl says. Let us state the problem. This is how he states what I just stated. And this is a genuine 21st century historical phenomenon. We are losing our sons and daughters to Rome. Do you realize this? We are, I'll say it again. We are losing our sons and daughters to Rome. And we are default. We are to blame. By the way, I would consider that apostasy. I want to be clear about that. That is not a trajectory within Christianity. That moves us outside of Christianity. Uh, But what happens when the salt loses its flavor? That's what's happened to Christianity today. Uh, And that's why I think the word flavor is still a good word. While Presbyterianism, he says, offers a much more highbrow form of Protestant uh, Christianity for Baptists. A lot of people are coming out of the Baptist church, my wife included. Uh, I'm coming more out of the broadly evangelical charismatic church. He says it's low church impulses are legion to believers who desire a more sober and formal expression of devotion. In other words, get away from the sentimentality, get away from the world. Uh, We live in an age that isn't serious. Uh, It's it's uh, it's not just blasphemous and profane, but it's. And course, but it's uh, people are incapable of serious thought at any level. Uh, So it is a uh, there's another word for anti-intellectual. It is a uh, well, it's the age of children. I don't know how else to describe it. And uh, children are running the church. I'm speaking metaphorically. He says uh, Presbyterians in search of serious worship are turning into Episcopalians. They're turning to the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. Again, that's the problem of the 21st century. Rare is the Presbyterian congregation that offers such liturgically minded souls a comfortable home. Other Presbyterian seekers trying to extract liturgical graciousness out of a tradition that appears to have none turn to a highbrow form of blended worship. Instead of introducing praise songs and choruses into the average Presbyterian order of worship, the lowbrow version 
those wanting greater formality go in the other direction and import into Presbyterian services liturgical elements from other high church traditions. So let's say that we as a church became conscious of this. We didn't want to be, to use his his language, lowbrow Presbyterians, but we wanted to be highbrow. Uh, I mean, that's that's a little bit humorous, but and I think it's meant to be. But uh, but what you sometimes see, and I've seen this in the PCA especially, is that the churches that are rejecting those in, intense low church impulses and seeking to address the need of the hour are instead of giving expression to Presbyterian liturgy, they're borrowing from Anglican liturgy, and so such that the the Presbyterian service has a distinctly Anglican flavor to it. But what they're failing to realize, Daryl is saying, uh, go on with the quote, that there is buried within the historical mass of low church Presbyterianism, a high church tradition, every bit as divinely appointed and liturgically well-conceived as the best of other traditions higher up on the church scale. If so, then low church Presbyterianism may turn out to be the real oxymoron. And so what he's arguing for in this book is what he calls high church Presbyterianism. That Presbyterians have, again, uh, their own uh, ability to express liturgy that we don't need either to get rid of, which is the 20th century phenomenon, or in the 21st century to borrow from other liturgies, because those liturgies are not compatible with our theology. And so the question becomes, what are the main features of a Reformed and Presbyterian liturgy? Again, that just means our worship service, or the, the, the distinct form and flavor of our worship service. It doesn't mean just the order of service. Oftentimes, that's what liturgy has come to mean, just the order of service that you read in the bulletin. But but liturgy here understood more broadly as the entirety of the worship service, its form, its flavor, its content. And can such liturgy ever satisfy the longing of those in search of a serious and substantial worship? Is there any sense of the sacred in Presbyterian worship, of the cleansing we don't have the holy water that we sprinkle on you, but but is there uh, that you might find that in a Catholic church, I think. Uh, but is there any sense of cleansing from the world, or will those in search of these things—the sacred, the substantial, the tradition, the grandness of worship—will those in search of these things inevitably turn to other traditions, or? Import those traditions into Presbyterian worship. Seemingly, those are the two alternatives. Either I will become an Anglican or I will bring Anglicanism into the Presbyterian church. And ironically, the Anglicans are faced with the same dilemma. (laughs) Can anyone explain what you think I mean? The Anglicans are importing, and they've been doing this all along, by the way, they're importing Roman Catholicism into their worship service. So we're not the only ones doing this. Or Presbyterians now importing uh, low church practices in, which is more common. But, but are we capable of giving expression to our theology in the way Calvin and the Puritans did? The confession of faith and the directory of worship side by side. Again, what a beautiful picture of that, which even we don't have. They're separate books. Well, it might be helpful here. I'm trying to define the terms. I tried to define experimental today. I also want to define what I mean by high church as opposed to low church. I think instinctively we all have a sense of this, but it might be a little bit difficult to define. So if if I were to just give an example, the low church would be like your country Baptist church with the Wednesday night revival meeting and the lay preacher. 
uh, who takes pride in the fact that he didn't prepare his sermon. Uh, I'm trying to think of as many possible examples as I could. Uh, that's one. That's one model. Uh, and then the other model would be the the grandness of Rome or the grandness of, of a, an Anglican cathedral, a seven million dollar cathedral like we have in this town. The grandness, the, the specter of it all. Or, uh, so I don't know if specter is the right word, but anyways, um, the the uh, the sight of it all. Um, those are the two ends of the spectrum, high church and low church, defined in their most extreme forms. But there is a spectrum, no doubt. Um, so it, that's an example of what I'm describing. Let me now describe it. What does high church mean? And Daryl is saying this, this applies to Presbyterianism historically considered. We, 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 are, we fall within the high church, not the low church spectrum, which is why low church Presbyterianism is such an oxymoron although it's become historically the most common uh, thing. He defines it simply as a respect for ritual, formality, and holy office. Ritual, formality, and holy office. Holy office has to do in particular with the minister. So an esteem for the minister. uh, In the other traditions, an esteem for the priests. Seeing all of these things as sacred to some degree. Uh, but these are precisely ritual formality and holy office, the things that the low church rejects and seeks uh, to assert in its own mind its superior spirituality, as they imagine, by the absence of these things. We are spiritual because we have informal worship. We are spiritual because we have a lay preacher who doesn't prepare sermons and because he doesn't he didn't go to seminary and, and he has another job. You see, it's not holy office. It's just a guy up there talking. That's low church. I mean, in its most extreme form. I'm not suggesting that's what you would find in every country Baptist church. I'm I'm drawing the most extreme picture just to illustrate the point. Uh, And and also, well, no, those are the examples I wanted to give. The informal worship, the lay preaching, and so on. Daryl says, one of the most obvious features that sets high church traditions apart from low church Protestantism is worship. High church liturgy is more formal and reserved, using approved forms and rituals than low church, which tends, to, tends towards spontaneous and folksy expressions of devotion. Again, uh, approved forms and rituals, historically approved and accepted, rather than spontaneous and folksy folksy uh is is another word for contemporary this is this is kind of the modern ethos of the day we we don't we don't need you know the tradition of the church we we can do just fine ourselves uh we can meet people as they are that would be the thought there so uh but what's missing is a sense of the grandness and the sacred nature of worship Now, historically, let me say again, the liturgists have history on their side. Daryl says the early creeds of Presbyterian and Reformed churches assume a high regard for the ordained ministry of the church from the function of pastors to the means of grace, as well as an adherence to the correct forms of liturgy and polity. And so, as I say, they not only gave expression to this in their creeds and one of the things the Reformation uh, brought about was uh, the proliferation of creeds. Every branch, it seemed, had its own creed. 
but also at the same time, as I say, they, they gave great thought and care to their forms of worship, what worship would look like. Which is why, again, if you go into a historically Presbyterian church versus a historically Lutheran church, the thing you're going to be struck by is not their differing views of justification. The thing you're going to be struck by is the worship service. It looks very different. I've been to Missouri Synod Lutheran churches. Uh, in fact, I would rather go to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church than a, 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 a Southern Baptist church when I'm traveling. I couldn't, once I couldn't find an OPC church or a PCA church, and so I went to the Missouri Synod Lutheran church. I see them as having more in common with us. As, as I continue to lay out the case, perhaps you'll see why I'm saying that. But it was a very different worship service. I could go through all the reasons why, and I won't do that. Uh, but, but again, I wasn't struck by the way we differed on justification. It was the way that we differed on worship. There's reasons for this, historically speaking. They were self-consciously uh, forming traditions, the Lutheran and the Reformed. So historically, a concern for liturgy is appropriate to the Reformed and the Calvinistic outlook. And a, a lack of concern is not superior spirituality or a better grasp of Calvin. It's actually the opposite. Uh, another quote, again, history being on their side, for Calvin, Reformed theology should be embodied in certain liturgical manners. I like that way of putting it. It is not a shapeless substance that can take any possible form, no matter how sincere or earnest. But it ought to have a particular shape, he is saying. And so both, uh, I'll end with this thought, both Hart, and I'll, I'll make a note of where I stopped, both Daryl Hart and Terry Johnson point to the early forms of worship in Geneva as standard expressions of Reformed piety and devotion. In other words, what you find in Geneva and then you find in the Reformed churches uh, is, is a set liturgy which they shared in common so that you could go between the churches and more or less expect the same thing rather than travel and say, I wonder what I'm going to get here like today. So that uniformity in worship uh, ought to be one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a Reformed Calvinist in the 21st century. If we are, if we are historically conscious, as opposed to, uh, I'll read one more quote, as, as opposed to what uh, Terry Johnson calls liturgical Trotskyism, uh, subjecting the church to perpetual liturgical revolution. I'll, I'll get into that more uh, later in, in later lessons. Uh, but I think we need to stop there and we can keep going. Just to preview next time, what we're going to look at are the distinctive elements of Reformed worship as found in Calvin's uh, liturgy and, and, and especially the ones that, uh, that Daryl highlights. The things... When you come into a Presbyterian service, you ought to expect to find. And not just to find these things, because we share some of these things in common with other traditions, but, but we give expression to them in a particular way. Uh, so I, I, that will be the focus, and, and maybe other things, because that was supposed to be the end of this lesson, uh, but that will become the focus of the next lesson. Uh, but let's close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for uh, the teaching of, of men such as Daryl and, um, and Terry Johnson and Hughes Oliphant, all men who were historians. Uh, Father, uh, there's, no, there's no use in us pretending that we, we are able to reinvent the wheel. There's no need for us to do it. 
Uh, but we have this, this consciousness of, of standing on the shoulders of other men, as they did themselves. We don't need to start over with every generation. Uh, we can take the best things from prior generations, and, and we can improve upon them, but we don't need to reject them. God, uh, let, us, let us have a sense of what it means to be Presbyterians, and then perhaps as a result we'll decide that we aren't Presbyterians, but at least we're intellectually honest at that point. And so, God, we pray for integrity in the church and integrity in her worship, and integrity in her witness to the world, and uh, and, and a sense a sense of the sacred as the reformers uh, as the reformers felt themselves. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.